I get to tell on you? So I told him one day that I really wanted to see the Northern Lights. And so he showed me a picture. And he said, there, now you've seen them. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Did you hear we're making I a satellite of Celis Academy? Is that, so that's a yes. Yeah, cousin Elon Musk and I are going to launch a satellite. <laughs> it's going to broadcast the And then the we'll launch our students up oh, into the satellite. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it is mm -hmm. exciting. And when you talk about a satellite, Solace Academy, uh, we are planning another Solace Camp, and that's fun. We like having students come and visit, and we get more students, and we're pretty excited about it. Mm -hmm. A lot of really good things are happening aren't they? Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. So um, you have to want to fail. Is that what Tobias said? That's kind of what he said. Or yeah. willing to fail. Willing to fail. Willing to fail. Not be afraid of failing. Not, not, are you afraid? I have been. <clears throat> I have invented a perpetual motion machine. Really? And just to show you how courageous I am, how courageous I am about failing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to test it for the very first time right here on Science Live. Okay. With everybody watching. Okay. So let me tell you how it works. It's operated by this little still ball. Can you see that little teeny ball? And you see there's a little tray here. If I tilt this, maybe you can see it a little better. Can you see that little hole? Mm -hmm. So I drop this ball in there. It goes down the hole and then if you look at it from the side, camera, there you go. It goes down this ramp, and it's curved so that it shoots back up in here. And then it goes through again, and it shoots back up here. Really? And it does it forever. I want to see that. Perpetual motion. What do you think? If it, I want to see that. Yeah. I'm not sure if I really want to try that. Okay, live. Hmm? Live. Okay. So all you have to do is push the ball down through here. It goes down like that. And see this curve? Mm -hmm. That curve is perfect to shoot it right back up in here so that it just goes and goes and goes. Okay. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, here goes the first test. So I put the ball in and shoot it through. That's the bottom of the optimism curve. It, <laughs> it almost worked. <laughs> Are you being pessimistic? No, I'm just observing. I'm not afraid to fail. <laughs> what if it works? Do you realize how much this will upset science if it works? Yes, because perpetual yeah. motion is. I don't mind disrupting if it works. <laughs> okay. okay. So put it back in here. Okay. Now watch very careful because I'm going to push it through and watch. It's going to go down, shoot right up here, and it'll just keep going. Mm -hmm. That time I think it went higher. It did. Hmm. So what's wrong with this? Not enough force pushing it down. You need more gravity. More gravity. Okay, let's try it with a little bit more gravity. <laughs> I love it. We could eat more. <laughs> okay, one more time. Now okay. watch. Maybe if I push it harder, it'll help it get started. Help it oh, that higher. time it almost I saw it try to go up. So I think the problem is that when you get more gravity, maybe it goes down faster, but then the gravity stops when it's shooting up. So I think we've got a flawed design. So what are you going to do about it? 
Well, what would you recommend, Dr. Peche Monet? <laughs> Pushing it through heart? If we could have it go down on Earth and then come up on Mars. Yeah, that's, that's what we wanted. That to would do. fix it, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what we need is we need something to accelerate because here's the deal. As the ball goes rolling down here, it's pushing through the air and it has to push the air out of the way like an airplane has to push the air out of the way, so it slows it down, and so it doesn't have enough speed to get back up here. Mm -hmm. And that's why perpetual motion is so darn tricky, because we consume energy as we're flying through the air and doing different things, so that's why things like that, like this, don't work. So you know, it was a good try, though. It's going to give up? No. no. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> what if we were to put magnets in here, okay, and magnets with a hall sensor? Do you remember what hall sensors are? It's not feedback, but... Yeah, in elementary school, they have hall monitors. Yes. <laughs> and they're grouchy people. <laughs> I didn't get Only along with the them too place. much. What? One minute <laughs> late. And they send you down to the office. That's, that's why, never I, that's why I study online. <laughs> you know, if you log in to sell us one minute late, it just smiles at you. <laughs> you show up one minute late and the whole monitor. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just I saying. didn't know that. But no, uh, it, the Hall effect. The Hall effect is an interesting effect. It's an effect where you sense the presence of a magnet. A magnet has a magnetic field. So if, can you imagine an imaginary magnet? I can. How big is it? It's like, fits right there in your hand. How big? That big. Oh, okay, then let me open up a little bit. Okay, <laughs> good. So you're imagining this nice magnet, and around the magnet is a magnetic field. And so if I had, can you imagine in this hand, a Hall effect transducer? This is a little thing like a little transistor or something, like an LED only doesn't emit light. It's a little sensor, okay. and if a magnetic field gets close, the sensor says, hey, I sense a magnet, and it'll turn on electricity. And if you pull the magnet away, it says the magnet's gone, and it turns off electricity. Okay. On, off, on, off. You with me? Mm -hmm. So if I put a Hall effect sensor here, that would sense when there's a ball coming down and then it would turn on a magnet, it would accelerate the ball, give it a little push, and then turn off the magnet so it'd go shooting past. With just a little push, I think it could make it up in here. I want to see. Okay, this, this will be your official science fair for next year. <laughs> it could be done. You could have a little magnetic accelerator. You wouldn't need a Hall effect sensor either. You could use a light emitting diode and a light sensor. And so when the ball comes down, it senses the ball going by because it shuts off the light beam, turns on an electromagnet, accelerates it for just a second, turns it off because the electromagnet will pull it down, but if it's pulling it when it goes past, it'll slow it down. So you want to just give it a little kick, and then you get enough Acceleration so it come flying through the air and land back in the tray and it go round and round and round. Okay. 
What do you mean, okay? <laughs> I want to see Stop it. Mind. Okay. Now imagine the magnet. I imagined it, but it didn't work. <laughs> it's not my fault if you don't have much imagination. <laughs> In my imagination, it went, vroom, vroom, vroom. <laughs> Okay, I'll imagine yeah. that better. You know, if you had a microphone or something, you could do, who knows what you could do if you had it set up properly. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, look what you did. Who <laughs> want my ball back? <laughs> please, please. You stole it? <laughs> It's a little Okay, <laughs> so anyway. <clears throat> I like that. Thank you. That's neat. <laughs> so scientists, uh -huh. note to your notebook. Uh -huh. People like you if you do that. <laughs> okay? People, yeah, people those. like me. You know, I really enjoyed um, John's little jumping thing. Till it is I pretty amazing. I... Uh, I, I like things that are extraordinary. And one of the things that I learned about early in life that's extraordinary is frogs. Frogs are just little, and they can really jump. Okay. And I used to be an expert at getting them to jump. And but then I discovered grasshoppers. Grasshoppers are smaller than frogs, usually. And boy, they can jump. Now, yeah, I realize sometimes grasshoppers are cheaters, and they pull out these concealed wings. Yeah, they do. Then they really jump. In fact, I saw one. I said, how far you can jump? And he floor of the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. They have those little funny legs back there, and they just go, how did they do that? And I think John's right. They kind of, yeah, it's amazing. But the one that outperforms them all are fleas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know about this? Fleas, for their size, <laughs> They're crazy. I think are the champion jumpers. They can just pew. It's really, really, really amazing, isn't it? They're not neat. I think that's neat. And, and this robot that does that, that's, that's really a nifty thing. And you know, you get up on the moon where you don't have much gravity, and away mm -hmm. you go, it's good. And then Tobias tells us about these airplanes. So much of my life has been about airplanes. When I was eight years old, I went on an outing with a, a group of my friends, and we went to the airport, and we got into the little airplane, and I went for my very, very first airplane ride. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing for the very first time, those little toy houses and cars down there. And it was amazing. You look out the window and it's just, they looked real, but they were too little. It was amazing. And from that minute, I have loved aviation. And I can hardly wait to learn to be a pilot. When I started flying school, I started one lesson at a time. I would save up money doing odd jobs, get enough money for one lesson, and I go take a flying lesson. And I really, really, really love flying. 
Later, many of you know that I had the wonderful privilege of being mentored by Bill Lear, the guy that made the Learjet. And that was an incredible experience. But years later in my life, when we were ready to start the International Academy of Science and the Institute of Science and Technology, this university, I met a couple more great aviators. One of them was Willis Hawkins of Lockheed. And Willis was, uh, he's passed away now, but he's a wonderful scientist and someone that I have so much respect for. But another one of our founders was Dr. Nikolai Tupolev. Uh, Dr. Tupolev was from the Soviet Union, from Moscow. And he was the director of what they called the Tupolev Design Bureau. It was actually started by his father, and then he took it over. And Tupolev did many, many interesting projects. And one of the projects he did was kind of a continuation of this de Havilland airline, only his project was to make a supersonic transport, one that would fly faster than sound. Now, supersonic transports are, are pretty neat. Uh, the United States kind of started it all because we said we were going to make the SST. And we allocated a lot of money. We started doing research and development. And then the American SST project got canceled because of a budget crunch in Washington. And the French and the British had joined together on, on their SST project. And over in Moscow, Tupolev, Dr. Tupolev, designed his supersonic transport. And the interesting thing is his SST actually flew four months before the French-British one did. So he had the first one in the air. I want to show you a picture of Dr. Tupolev. Uh, this is one of our founders. There he is. He's that handsome guy right in the middle. <laughs> and I'd like to see if we can show you some video of what his airplane looked like. And he did a lot of airplanes, by the way. And here he is talking about an airplane. I want to show you one flying. Can we find that? There we go. Can you see it? So since these planes are going to go so fast, they have to have a very, very narrow configuration, a narrow point. Uh, the, the SST uh, flies over two times the speed of sound. So that means if you're going somewhere in an airline, you're going to get there in less than half the time. And here you can see it taking off. You notice how the nose droops so you can see the runway at takeoff and landing. And then once you get flying, they retract the wheels and they tilt the nose up so that they can fly with, with less drag. And there goes his wheels, and there he went, just like that. So the, the SST is a, an amazing, amazing airplane. The Concorde, which was the one that was made in France, and actually the British and the French did it as a two-country development, a joint venture, but their, their airplane flew for many years, and I've shared with you before how fun it was for me to get into the uh, Concorde in Paris and fly to New York and to arrive in New York before I took off. <laughs> of course, there are time zone changes, but the plane flew faster than the Earth turned, so we actually landed earlier 
by the clock, local time, than when we'd taken off. And it was, it was an amazing experience. Eventually, the Concorde uh, went out of service. And there was a couple reasons why. One thing was when an airplane reaches the speed of sound and then goes a little faster and breaks through the sound barrier, as it's going forward, it, sound is going out from the airplane and the engines at the same speed the airplane's flying. So the sound just starts building up and building up, and pretty soon you get a sonic boom. And the sonic booms kind of bothered people that were trying to sleep or different <laughs> things. And so a lot of places said they wouldn't be able to fly the SST at those airports, which was too mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. But they also had a, an accident where they blew a tire and some people uh, were hurt and even lost their lives. And, and so because of an accident, it kind of was canceled. But it was, I think the other thing was it was very, very expensive. The airplane goes so fast that it takes so much fuel that it's just very, very expensive to fly. And so they, they really had to subsidize. That means the government had to pay for the tickets, part of the ticket of everybody that flew it. And thank you, French and British government, for paying part of my ticket. <laughs> when the United States started this whole SST uh, idea, we were going to power our airplane with hydrogen. And if they had stayed on track for doing that, it would have succeeded financially. Hydrogen weighs one-third as much as jet fuel. So that means that the airplane would have been much lighter, and so we could have been able to do that much more affordably. Weight is drag, and so that's a problem. Now, the Dr. Tupolev's plane is, uh, and, and I hope we've got a little more footage of it flying, but the, uh, his airplane had a real sad experience. It was the first one flying. It was the first one to carry passengers in commercial service. But they took the, uh, the supersonic transport from Moscow, the Tupolev, to the Paris Air Show, and the French SST was flying around and impressed everybody, and so then the Russian version, designed by Dr. Tupolev, took off, and they decided they had to outperform the French, and so they started doing some really strange acrobatic moves in this great big supersonic airplane, and right in front of everybody, the strain on the plane was too great, too great and it broke. The airplane broke in, in flight, came down on a little village and, and uh, it was a, like a major disaster. And so that slowed things way down, as you can imagine. And then uh, about five years later, after they had been on maybe 55 flights carrying passengers, they had another accident. And that second accident killed the program. So the the effort of pioneering new ground is, uh, is very challenging. I want to show you this photograph of, of the airplane again. You can see it there and how the nose is, is tucked down so that the pilots can actually see the runway when they're landing. It's really nice to see where you're landing. I mean, and, and you don't really need to. That's enough of that. 
Okay, we'll just hold it up there. Um, when uh, I was having dinner one night with our, our other, one of our other founders, Dr. Hawkins, uh, we were talking about the uh, L-1011. And that was a giant jumbo airline built by Lockheed. And he was telling me about how they did their maiden flight, their maiden passenger carrying flight. And they took off from Los Angeles. And they filled the whole big jumbo airplane. I think it was 300 and something people. They filled it up with journalists to go on this maiden flight. And uh, they announced to the people, hello, this is your pilot. We're going to be taking off now. And we will be nonstop to Paris, France. And then he said, I just want to let you know that I am not touching the controls. And I will not touch them again until we've landed in Paris. <laughs> and this particular airplane, according to Dr. Hawkins, was the first commercial airline that could fly completely on instruments. It was certified for a landing with zero visibility. So it's so foggy, you can't even see the runway. Um, the pilot just sits up there in front and says, I hope it works, I hope it works, I hope it works. <laughs> and, and the airplane does it all by itself, which so is remarkable. It's really, really amazing. It is. So these advances are, are difficult. Now, Mr. Lear, when he built the Learjet, he was uh, off to a great start. He was building airplanes. Frank Sinatra bought one. Everybody was excited. And then he had one of his planes crash. And of course, the problem with airplane crashes is um, very often they're fatal. They they're mm -hmm. come falling out of the sky, and, and this one was, was a very serious crash. And the uh, uh, flight examiners came and studied the crash and decided that it was because of pilot error. And so they didn't ground the airplane. But a short time later, another Learjet crashed. And Mr. Lear said that he knew those pilots, both of them. And they were both so good that he knew they didn't crash those because of pilot error. And so they didn't ground, the, the government didn't ground the airplane, but Mr. Lear decided that he had to stop till he found the problem. And he said, I, I knew that both of the airplanes took off in rain, rainy weather, and then climbed altitude. And he said, I knew that had to somehow explain why the airplane had crashed. And it turns out that the Learjet could go straight up. And it could climb so fast that it was very rare for a commercial plane to be able to climb that fast. And what he said is rain would get in the in the ailerons, the little flaps on the back of the wings that are used to steer, rain would get in there, and when they climbed so fast, it would freeze. And when they'd freeze, then the ailerons wouldn't work. And so once he realized that, he fixed it by just drilling a couple little holes in the trailing edge of the aileron so the water would drain out while it was climbing. And they never had that problem again. So. Um, Sometimes things are very hard. When you're doing something like an airplane and life's at stake, then that's really serious. But in all science, 
you, you have to assume that there are going to be challenges. And part of the whole philosophy of the scientific method is to find out what the challenges are, to discover what they are, and then to discover ways of, of working around them. And inventioneering, and the success or failure of inventioneering is very often how well you can identify the problems and then create solutions. If you don't understand the problem, it's much harder to figure out how to make it go away. And like in this case, uh, my problem is that perpetual motion doesn't work. I mean, science says there's a law of conservation of energy and, and, and it just doesn't work. But in this case, it does work. And it works because uh, <clears throat> In this little stand, there's a little battery. And inside this hole, there's a little wheel. So when it drops down, it gives it a little push. And the little push gives it enough speed to hopefully get back on. You want to see that again? Mm -hmm. I, I have to engage my little motor. Shh. OK. <laughs> would, would you do the honors? I am not a tease. <laughs> you are a you tease. You just didn't catch it. <laughs> it's your last try. Okay, roll it, spin it around there. Here we go. Here it goes. Awesome. There it goes. Whoop. I only got two times. One. But it's. Very clever, isn't it? Two, three. So you're better at that. Well, I've had more practice. <laughs> more. <laughs> it's a good way to learn counting, though, isn't it? <laughs> Six. <laughs> yep. Seven. Yep. If we could get seven, that would Eight. be really good, wouldn't it? <laughs> okay. That's now, really now fun. you're just showing off. No, okay, it wasn't so me. You're the one who did that. Oh, I turned off right in the middle. So, uh, in most of the projects <laughs> that I've had the privilege of being involved in, it looks like it's going to work and it comes somewhat close to working, but then you have to find a way to give your project that extra little kick to get it over the hump and to actually make it work. And I would hope that when we're doing science fair projects, especially as you start getting a little bit older, you high school students, that you'll realize that you want to push the edge. You want to be able to do what can't be done. And one of the really wonderful experiences of my career, probably from a technical point of view, one of the things I'm most proud of was the work that I did in the 70s with client-server computing. At that time, there was no such thing as client-server computing. There were mainframes, big mainframes built mainly by IBM, but also there was digital equipment, a few people making mini computers. <laughs> their computers were little mainframes. But it was one big, giant computer that, in the case of IBM, it it rented for a million dollars a year, this computer, and then they ran wires out to what they called dumb terminals, little screens you could type at, 
but they weren't computers. All the computing was being done by this one big machine. And you'd all have to share your turn, and they were slow, and they couldn't do very much. And that's when I learned about the microprocessor that had been developed by Intel. I was using it on one of my hydrogen experiments to test hydrogen storage. And when I started using that little microprocessor, I realized, oh boy, this is like putting one of those mainframes in everybody's hand. Everybody's going to have their own computer. And I realized that in 1975. Everybody's going to have their own computer. And then they're all going to want to share information. How could you do that? And you know, from that point of view that day, it seemed impossible. No one knew how to do that. We had the ability to run a program in one computer that say, send data, send data to that computer. And then you'd have to run a program in the other computer that says, receive data, receive data from that computer. And then you could send a message or something. But I wanted to invent a way so that all the computers in the world would be able to share all the information with the only limitation being the security of wanting to let them or not by the owner of the data. And so I worked at it, and I remember on a Saturday, sitting in my home trying to figure out how to hook up all the computers in the world. And by the way, right then, there were only mainframes. <laughs> and I thought, everybody's going to have a computer. How can we hook them up so they can all share data? because the programming becomes massive. And I want to just share one more example. One of the major hotel chains of, of our country is the Marriott Hotel System. And I was introduced to the founder, J. Willard Marriott, and he told me that they had a computer problem. And the computer problem was they had so many people reserving hotel rooms that when the operators on the toll-free number would take a call to schedule a room, they couldn't look at all the hotels. And so they had to book some of the rooms in the local hotel if they got a call, and some on the 800 number, and he says, we have a lot of empty rooms because there's not a computer big enough to handle them all. So when they weren't big enough, they put two IBM computers together and made a program to share information. And then they did three, and when they got up to nine mainframes, the biggest mainframes IBM makes, the 10th mainframe they added actually slowed down how many they could schedule. And that's because all of those 10 computers had to check with each other. Well, did you send that room? Did you sell it? Did you sell it? And the software became so complicated that that's as big as they could get. Well, I want an invention where you could have millions of computers all sharing the same information, and it would work. And so I came up with an idea that I called <clears throat> FSD, Functionally Structured Distribution. And to me, when I saw it, it was just like this light went on, and all of a sudden I could see how this whole system would work. And functionally structured. What I meant by that is you're going to divide all the computers in the world into two categories based on their function. If they happen to be working for a person, 
a user, then I'm going to call them user computers, what we'd call personal computers today. But the term personal computer wasn't going to come out for six more years. This is six years before the IBM PC. So those would be user computers. And then would have a second computer that wouldn't have a user sitting there. It would be a data center computer is what I call them. Today we call them file servers. It's a little bit of an incorrect name, but that's what they're called. They're called servers. And the data center would strictly be in the business of talking to other computers. And a user would ask their computer, their computer would then ask the data center, the data center would get the data and give it back. A simple concept, of course there were a lot of details, there were some really important rules of interaction that made it work. And I knew this would change the computer field. So I started building it. It ended up costing me $3 million <laughs> to get this system all working. And I was able to assemble a team of some of the best programmers and engineers in the world. In fact, the guy who designed my hardware was an engineer from Boeing. Boeing was the first company to really use microprocessors in their airplanes. And I, the guy that helped write my system software was the guy that developed the computer at IBM for the space shuttle. So these were really good people. We got it done, and we built the first client-server computing system in 1976. We installed the first big system at Winnebago Industries in Forest City, Iowa. And they had an IBM 370-143, which is a big mainframe. And during the peak hours where all their dealers were calling wanting to order a motorhome, they said, they say, okay, you want a blue one with a special trim, a chieftain? Okay, just a minute. They said they'd have to hold for one minute, waiting for the computer to see if they had one in stock. Because there were so many calls coming in at once, they were all on dumb terminals sharing the same computer. When they put my Billings computer system in, with 200 terminals, they never got over a half second for an answer. It was like revolutionary. And I was so excited. And then a big report came out in the Wall Street Journal. And they put me on the front cover. <laughs> and they had a picture of me. It wasn't a picture, it was a drawing. A sketch of you? A sketch of my face. And um, <clears throat> I looked at it, and I thought, my goodness. I don't know who the artist was, but I looked like a mafia hitman. <laughs> it was terrible. It was, What's that? And, and the, the headline was, it's hard to douse shareholder faith in Roger Billings. And then it went in and says, so he thinks that his hydrogen car is going to catch on and people all over the world are going to be driving hydrogen cars, which, by the way, they're starting to. And he says, and now he's got some news. He says that his new computer is going to knock out mainframe computers. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> but it did. It did. And my little computer design literally has changed, changed the world. Now, some of you know that when I was building that computer, I hired Bill Gates and his little tiny Microsoft. In fact, the first year I hired them, 
his office was just in his apartment down in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I gave him all of his funding the first six months. And a lot of other things in that field. But the point is that computers have now become a very important part of our world. Everybody uses them. Everybody has one. Almost, almost everybody. I remember trying to teach my mother to run the Billings computer. <laughs> and uh, boy, she taught me how to make. It was easier to make the computer user friendly than to teach her how to run something that wasn't <laughs> user friendly. But my point is, that computer, I think, changed the world. And of course, it gave me a lot of my financial ability to do some of the things that I'm doing today, like Acellus. I think that um, we could do a lot of discussions about all the difficulties we ran in trying to achieve that project. And even after you achieve it, a lot of people really criticize when you do something that disrupts the whole computer industry, and it's true, mainframes are, it really disrupted. And people that build mainframes don't like that. They weren't too pleased. But that's what inventioneers do. We disrupt the status quo technology with something new and something better. We need more and more and more inventioneers. We really do. Uh, today, we're working on a lot of really cutting-edge projects, projects that will make computers much, much, much more secure and capable of doing wonderful things. And I, I really encourage people that are interested in cybersecurity, interested in computer science, to get in the field, this, this is a, a great career. And I hope some of you will, when you graduate, come and study here at ISD. Thank you. We'll see you next time.